All right, while I'm getting something to lean my Bible on, why don't you grab your Bibles, lean them on your lap. You might know this verse. Thanks, Rubes. Um, you might know this verse already, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Last week we talked a bit about that great faith chapter in the book of Hebrews as we've been working through our series of these five different women who are woven into the story of Jesus' birth. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says though, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, we've talked about hope this morning already, the proof of what is not seen. Now, I've chosen this verse particularly as our, um, well, let's call it a mooring post. It's a mooring post for today's sermon. In fact, probably could have chosen this as our key verse for the entire series, Threads of Scandalous Grace, which trace the lives of these Five women as they are woven into the story of Jesus. And Matthew records their names for us in his genealogy in the opening chapter of his gospel. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. You're already in Hebrews. Just go back. Go back to the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Let's remind ourselves we won't read right from the beginning of the genealogy. If you're here for the first time today or just tuning in, we've been uh, already moving our way through this somewhat. So let's just start at verse 3, Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, we looked at Tamar's story. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. We looked at Rahab's story. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Okay, the first thread that we followed in this series was the most obvious thread we began with Jesus' mother, Mary. Okay, we called her Mary, the unlikely girl. Right, remember that? Mary, the unlikely girl. And uh, just to refresh your memory, I've got a picture up there, I think, uh, on the slide. Mary, who we remembered as being um, this quiet young girl from a small village probably had no great sense of expectation beyond her life apart from get married, have kids, do what her mother had done before her, grandmother before her and so on. And yet this unlikely girl was weaved into the story of Jesus' life. Then after we looked at Mary, we traveled right back to the beginning and we explored the story of Tamar. Tamar, the seeker of justice. Tamar, who had been really taken advantage of by men in her life, who sought justice. And we, we saw the way that there was um, these, 
No, no clear villain to the story, no clear hero to the story, but yet in Tamar we see a signpost which points us towards Jesus. Next was Rahab. Rahab, more than a prostitute. Often just known by that term, known by that title. And we could see that God was able to redeem the outcast the margins, and draw them into his story. Today, we turn our attention to Ruth. Ruth. She appears in the story just one generation after Rahab. Ruth, the widow. Ruth, the foreigner. Ruth, the stranger. Ruth, who marries Boaz, and if you saw the lineage in Matthew's Gospel, Boaz, and we could easily say Boaz, son of a prostitute, because his mum was Rahab. But we've called Ruth this morning the sacrificial servant. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we reflect on this story and Ruth's life and what it is that he might be saying to us today through it. Lord, will you meet us in your word in a particular way that we just can't understand? More than just print on the page or pixels on a screen, this is your word, living word. In it, we find eternal life. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would shape the story of Ruth for our hearts to encourage us in our walk to point us clearly towards Jesus and see our need for him. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, just to set the scene a little bit, because a little later this year, we plan on actually doing a, uh, a three-week series on the entire book of Ruth. So today, I really don't want to um, focus on the whole story. When we cover that book a little later, we're going to particularly look at um, the way that God moves through the story to go from uh, Ruth, a foreigner, to Ruth, a friend, so from foreigner to friend, and what we want to do is trace the, and celebrate the story of the gospel in this really beautiful Old Testament book. So today, really what I want to do is just give a brief introduction to this book and an overview of the beautiful story and this astounding woman, Ruth. Okay? So let me just give you a quick summary of the, the storyline, the arc of the story, and then we're just going to zoom in and focus on one particular part with it. Maybe you're unfamiliar with the story of Ruth. I said to Kath the other day, oh, we're going to be doing Ruth soon. And she said, oh, every time you go to a women's conference, we do Ruth. Um, nearly. I haven't been to many women's conference. Um, <laughs> and just in case, there's a quite a few people who haven't been to a women's conference either. Let me give you the real bullet point a summary of Ruth's story. All right? A severe famine had impacted, ravaged the land of Israel. Right? There was just desperation all over the place. And so it says a certain family left their land. Now, this is a big deal when, you, when you're a subsistence farmer. All right? When you leave your land, you leave your source of income. You leave your security. You leave everything. So they left their land and they went to a neighboring country in a desperate attempt to survive. Maybe they'd heard that the rains had been better there, that there was more fertile opportunity there. So it says, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, along with their two sons, whose name were Marlon and Chilion, 
they went to Moab, a neighbouring country to Israel, to look for a better life. Tragedy after tragedy hits this family. Right? First, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow and completely dependent on her two sons to survive. No social security, no way of sourcing income, no family, no extension, no people who would know her. She was a foreigner and an outcast in Moab. Each of her sons marry Moabite women. But within a decade, both her sons are also dead. So now Naomi has no husband and no sons to provide for her. With no prospect of survival, Naomi returns in deep grief. In fact, she actually changes her name along the way to say, my name is no longer Naomi, and she changes her name to Bitter. With no prospect of survival, Naomi returns in grief to her ancestral lands on the outskirts of a little village called Bethlehem in the hill country of Judah back in Israel. Naomi sets out for home. Her two daughter-in-laws, who are both now widows also, accompany her on the journey until at last Naomi begs them to remain behind. Naomi knows that her own future is bleak and even worse for her daughters by marriage. And Orpah, one of her daughters, listens to Naomi and turns back. Ruth, her second daughter-in-law, does not. Ruth had the opportunity to rebuild her life. After her husband dies, her mother-in-law, Naomi, gave Ruth permission to return to her home and to her family and to a future. Naomi had no way to financially provide for her daughter-in-law. She had no other sons for her to marry, which was common. She had no husband to provide for them. So here's the question. If given the choice to return to our families, who would welcome us and comfort us in our grief, would we leave Naomi? Would we reject the possibility of a comfortable life for the uncertainty of a new land, a new people, new customs, right? Ruth did. That's what Ruth did. Rather than return to her hometown, Ruth was steadfast in her love for Naomi. She sacrificed a life that she knew for a life that was uncertain. Naomi couldn't promise Ruth a comfortable future. She couldn't promise her a husband, financial security, but still Ruth went with her. She remained faithful to Naomi and she also pledges her allegiance to the Lord. So because of that faithfulness, Ruth was ultimately blessed with a husband named Boaz. 
And together they had a child named Obed, whose son was Jesse, who fathered King David. If we had to choose just one passage to highlight today, then I want it to be this one. Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Now, if, you, if you've been here before, if you've heard me preach before, you know that I have a somewhat um, love-hate relationship with what I call coffee cup verses. You know, you know what those sorts of verses are? They're the ones that when you go down to visit Kurong or your local Christian bookstore, you'll find no end of mugs that have placed over them really inspirational you know, and wonderful verses. You very rarely find a coffee mug which says, the wages of sin is death. All right? You, you just don't find that one. So there are certain verses that seem to end up on coffee cups and pencil cases and all those sorts of things. <laughs> I'm going to go with one that probably could be on a coffee cup if it was a big enough cup. Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and verse 17. You found it? All right. These are pretty well-known verses if you know the story of Ruth. This is Ruth's response to Naomi as Naomi stands at a crossroads on the way back to her homeland, begging her daughters, please return to your home. Please go back to what you know. Please return to security and safety. And Orpah walks away, and this is what Ruth says. Verse 16, chapter 1, Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth's pledge of allegiance to both her mother-in-law but also to God was made without any knowledge of benefit or promise of protection. Ruth knew nothing of what was going to happen if she walked this road. It wasn't a decision influenced by what she would gain, but instead it was an open-handed promise, a steadfast resolve to walk this path no matter what, no matter the cost. And that's why I said for a mooring post, I wanted to choose Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Do you remember what it said? Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof of what is not seen. Ruth could see nothing about what would happen after she left that crossroads. Given the decision to either go home or move forward to an unlife of uncertainty, she knew nothing of what would come of it. No benefit. No one stood there telling her all the things, all the blessings that would occur if she walked ahead. And yet she resolved. She had a sense of faith, of a reality of what was hoped for maybe, but not yet seen. Ruth could not have dared to dream of all that would unfold in her life. All that lay before her vision, right then and there, was dark and gloomy. 
No husband, no prospect, no security, no financial capability in that culture. But I think Ruth is a beautiful image of faith. An absolutely beautiful image of faith. Faith that clings to a reality that can't be seen. And resolves to walk. You know, for, for Ruth, she was walking into the terror of night. There was a thousand things that she could have easily listed that would have gone, gone wrong. And yet she has a sense of faith about what was required. So I'm going to ask you this morning to let Ruth lead you by the hand on those same paths. Because walking unknown paths is scary. Walking where we can't see is scary, right? Now, we are not, by nature, people who thrive on uncertainty. There's a small minority of us in the room who like the thrill of the unknown. But even just plain old-fashioned medical science shows that if we exist in that state of uncertainty for too long, it increases a whole variety of adverse health effects. There are negative health effects that happen. Hormones that are released in our brains when we live in too long in a state of uncertainty. Most of us instead gravitate towards predictability, certainty and security in our lives. Even if we do like every now and again to do something that's a bit on the edge. But Ruth had none of these things. No predictability, no certainty, no security. And there will be seasons in your life when you won't have those either. So I'm asking again this morning, I want you to let Ruth take you by the hand and lead you down those paths of uncertainty, of unknown. And there are five things that I think that we can take from Ruth's response from the entire book, which we're going to look at more in depth later on this year. But even just from Ruth's response to Naomi, I think there are five things that we need to focus on this morning. Five ways that Ruth takes you by the hand and leads you down these paths of uncertainty. The first one is her statement about direction. The statement about direction. Have a look at it in her response, found it in verse 16. She says, For wherever you go, I will go. Right? Wherever you go, I will go. Now, this is a statement, I think, about the forward movement of your life. I'm not sure about you, there have been seasons in my life where the years go by or the months go by, maybe, maybe the weeks go by, and there's lots of activity. You're, you're busy, but it feels like you're in a pool treading water, right? Your hands are moving, your feet are going, you're keeping your head above water, but you're not really actually going anywhere, right? Have you had seasons in your life like that? Where you feel like you're busy, you're working, you're going, you're, there's family life and social life and work life, and all these things are busy, but 
But you just have that nagging sense, am I actually going anywhere? Am I, am I moving anywhere in my life? Well, Ruth's response, wherever you go, I will go, I think speaks into that statement about forward movement in your life. A resolve, I think, to move in the paths that we are led on rather than even the, the, the sort of the paths that we, we blaze ourselves. You know, I'm not sure where I'm going. I'm just going to cut my own path. I want you to let Ruth lead you by the hand into that type of uncertainty. That you resolve with Ruth to walk in the footsteps of the one you follow. A lifestyle of this type of walking is the lifestyle of a disciple, which literally means follower, right? Follower is exactly the lifestyle that Jesus calls us on when he says, come, follow me. So in a sense, we can echo Ruth's response to Naomi this morning. And we have the opportunity this morning to stand at whatever crossroads of life you are on right now. And you will hear Jesus saying to you, unlike what Naomi was doing, Naomi was saying, go, go home, go to a life of certainty and comfort. Instead, Jesus says, come, follow me. He makes it clear. He says, hey, listen, if you follow me, you might not have someone to lay your head like I do. You, you might not have somewhere that, that just feels like home to you like I do. There will be some cost and it could actually be severe. But come, follow me. We have the opportunity this morning to say like Ruth says, wherever you go, I will go. That's the direction of my life. I don't know where that is. I'm not sure of what what's my tomorrow holds. It feels uncertain and a bit scary, but wherever you go, I will go. That's the first way that Ruth's taking us by the hand this morning. The second way is this. Not just a statement about direction, but also a statement about place. She says to Naomi, wherever you live, I will live. Wherever you live, I will live. Yeah. Look, some cultures have, I would say, a more profound awareness of how place impacts our sense of identity. Um, it's still probably a relative scale of awareness, though, across all cultures. We, we're becoming, as a people now, we are becoming, I would say, a more transient people. People who move around a lot, especially those of us who are probably from a more um, Western European heritage. We, we move around a lot. We change locations frequently. We change jobs and careers Frequently, We see new horizons on a regular basis. But somewhere deep down inside of us, place still matters. 
We often try to get to know someone, especially on the first time of meeting them, with this question. Where are you from? There's something about where someone's from and where I am from that helps shape our sense of identity. It's the way that we even get to know each other and greet one another. Place is still a fundamental building block in our psyche. I'm going to turn 47 this year, which marks a significant turning point in my life. This is the year, this year is the year that shifts the scales for me. Not 50, don't care too much about that, 47. I've actually counted it up a few years ago, preparing myself for this year. This is the year that completely alters something fundamental about my life. I have now lived longer outside of Queensland than I ever did living inside Queensland. All right? However, I can guarantee you unequivocally that I will not be pulling on your washed out sky blue jersey this year. All right? I am and always will be a Queenslander, unashamedly. All right? Praise God. We're on the mission field. Also, I have lived in Raymond Terrace longer than I have lived in any other location on earth. I've moved around, I think, about nine or ten times in my lifetime. Raymond Terrace is the longest I've ever lived in one place in my entire life. But when I think of the word home, my mind turns to a cracked cement causeway that snakes its way across the Nicholson River and marks the entrance to a dusty little town up in the Gulf country of Queensland. Place matters to us, it does. But place isn't ultimate. Place is not ultimate. When, when David writes in Psalm 84 verse 10, better a day in the courts. Better a day, he's addressing God, in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. What makes the threshold of the house of God so special? So that it's better than a thousand days elsewhere. Why is it? Because God's there. That's why David says it's so special. Not because of the, the architecture of that place, not because it was so beautifully designed or the stained glass windows or the ambient music or whatever they had there. David looked at it and said, that's where you are, God. That's what makes it special. 
It's the same reason why Abram would leave his homeland and go to a place that God would show him. It's why Moses would part oceans to get to the land that God promised. It's why Ruth would leave everything that she knew to become a foreigner. It's why Jesus said in John 14, 1 through 3, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And don't get me wrong, I love Raymond Terrace. I do. To be honest, I couldn't always say that. There was a time when I moved to Raymond Terrace that I thought Raymond Terrace was going to be a stepping stone to somewhere else. We'll just stay here for a while until God shows us where we're meant to be. I don't remember when it was, but I remember one day sitting having a cup of tea with my wife. I went, maybe this is where we're meant to be. I love Raymond Terrace, I really do. But I don't love Raymond Terrace because it's Raymond Terrace. I don't. I love it because this is where Jesus wants me to be. Right? Jesus has a mission for us here, not just me, for us. If you're here, Jesus has a mission for us here. And while ever he says stay, then here, Raymond Terrace is the best place on the planet for us to be. Alright? But can I ask you, what will you do if he says go? Then I want you to let Ruth guide you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Third way that Ruth can shape that journey and take us by the hand is identity. Identity. Next she says, your people will be my people. Your people will be my people. Ruth was willing to embrace a new identity. Ruth was a Moabite by birth. She was accustomed to their traditions. She was familiar with her own patterns of life, her own values, but Ruth was willing to lay all that aside and put on a whole new personhood. Your people will be my people, she said. Sounds a lot like what Jesus has called us to. Isn't this exactly what happened when you met Christ? Book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 13 says this, He, talking about Jesus, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son He loves. 
We're in a new place if you know Jesus. We don't live in the same postcode as we used to anymore. Jesus has given you a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. You're a new person. A new person. This is our new personhood. And it involves a continual process of taking off and putting on. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20 says this. That's not how you came to know Christ. He's talking to the church in Ephesus, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Maybe this morning you think this is a subject shift, but it's not. If you've ever wondered at the significance of Christian baptism, then this is it in a nutshell. Baptism is a public announcement that echoes Ruth's resolve, right? That your people will be my people and that your God will be my God. It's a two-way promise. When you walk into the, the waters of baptism and the crowd of witnesses gathers around to watch you, it is a two-way promise. A two-way declaration. You are telling God, first and foremost, as you walk into baptism, you are addressing God and you are saying to Him that you are now identifying with His covenant people. You say to God, your people are now my people. But you don't only address God. You also, in a sense, lower your eyes and you look at the witnesses that are around you and you declare to them that you now embrace the one true and living God that they do. And your God will be my God. That's what happens at baptism. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning and you've never been baptized, can I please encourage you? Follow Ruth there. Right? Make that declaration. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And walk the walk of a disciple. The next thing that we can learn from Ruth is this. And it's a statement about faith. Faith. She says, your God will be my God. Ruth, we've addressed, was a Moabite, not an Israelite. They neighbored each other, but they were completely unrelated. Ruth was a Moabite. A nation that worshipped as their national deity, the false god, Chemosh. You might not have ever heard of that god before. Chamosh, you can be glad you haven't. Chamosh was a fierce god whose name means destroyer 
or subduer. And was a God who had a taste for blood. Ruth was a woman who had only ever known worship to involve the terror of human sacrifice, which was common amongst the Moabites. In that moment, as Ruth stood at that crossroads of her life, it wasn't only a new direction that she was taking, a new place, a new people that she had to make a decision about. Ruth was required to make a choice about worship. Who would hold the affections of her heart? Who would she bow to? Would it be Chemosh? Or would it be Yahweh? Would it be a God who demanded the blood of his worshippers? Or would it be the God who would one day shed his own blood to create a kingdom of worshippers? It's interesting that just outside of Bethlehem, Ruth looks at Naomi and makes her choice. And she says, your God will be my God. I don't think she knew it would have been mind-blowing for her to consider that at that very moment, at that very moment in time, she was being woven into God's great plan of salvation, the story of redemption, and that she was soon to be a branch in the family tree of the God who became flesh, Emmanuel, the one by whose blood we are made clean, Jesus born in the very village that she was standing outside of. Jesus born in a manger, but truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And given the same choice... What will you say? Will you abandon all, rejecting the, the false affections for the empty gods that we set up around us in this world? Will you embrace God, the one true and living God, who sheds his own blood to purchase your life? Will you say to Ruth, and will you say with Ruth, your God will be my God? The choice we will all face, some have, some will be, but maybe today it's a choice you're facing right now. What will you say? Here's the last thing that we can hear from Ruth. And involves the future. She finally says, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. In a very real way, Ruth is casting all her chances before Naomi. And in doing so, she makes a statement about her future. 
To go where God leads and to be where God is, to embrace only God as your highest treasure, is to rest your eternal future into his hands. You're putting everything into his hands. Right? Ruth would live and Ruth would die. Just as all who came before have and most likely just as we will. Scripture makes it clear. You're probably familiar with this phrase, from dust we came and to dust we will return. But will we truly? Life and death are rolled into one and placed into the trustworthy hands of Jesus. You will have heard about Billy Graham. Billy Graham, probably the most influential evangelist in the 20th century, once said this. Someday you'll read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. You you don't have to be a huge Christian influencer like Billy Graham to have that sort of confidence. You just need Jesus. That's what Billy had. Ruth didn't know it yet, but that's where her faith was resting as well. Jesus would say, John 11, 25, I am the resurrection, and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. That's Jesus' statement about death and life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Death is a doorway, not a full stop, right? But what about when he heard the desperate cry for salvation, he turns his head to a dying thief that hung beside him. And what did Jesus say to him? Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And maybe to everyone looking, he's just like, what is he, what's he talking about? The guy's on, the, on death's doorway. And Jesus looks at him and says, exactly. He's about to step through it with me. The thief on the cross, Billy Graham and Ruth, they're all gathered there now. They're all there now, along with a countless crowd of those who've entrusted their all to the trustworthy hands of Jesus. And it won't be long and, and I'll probably be standing with them as well. The question remains still, will you? Will you? The faith of Ruth is the faith of Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for. It's what Ruth had as she stood on that crossroads with Naomi that day. It was a faith 
but it was only faith in something that was hoped for. But that's the best type of faith there is. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, and it's the proof of what is not yet seen. God is doing big things, and you can't see them yet. More than likely, you don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. You, you think you do, but you don't, let alone tomorrow or the week after. Ruth couldn't have known. There was no way she could have known. But she had faith. She had faith. A faith that clung to what she couldn't see. Ruth, the faithful servant. And I hope that Ruth had gently taken you by the hand this morning and led you down that anxious path of uncertainty that, that you're walking right now, maybe. And she's been there before and she says, come on, I'll take you by the hand, I'll walk you forward. The unknown paths that we face. But she faithfully also leads us towards Jesus. I'm really looking forward to just digging into this book a bit more later this year. I hope that you'll be here with us when we do. And explore a little bit more of that story as how God leads her through those paths of uncertainty. And how ultimately he provides a kinsman redeemer. Someone who purchased her. Someone who come alongside her. Someone to embrace her and love her. Provide a security and a future for her. And even in that, what a beautiful picture as we look towards Jesus, our Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Ruth. We thank you for her faithful life. We thank you for the declaration that she makes to Naomi. But ultimately, we can see it as she makes it to you. So Lord, I pray this morning that as you have spoken to us through your word, Holy Spirit, Will you take just your words, any of my words that are just useless, throw them aside. We just need your words this morning. Lord, will you speak and redeem and rescue? Will you draw hearts to yourself and bring comfort to those who are anxious? Will we be a people that, like Ruth, can step forward with a simple faith or something that we can't see yet, but a faith that rests in you to go where you lead us? to, to lead, be in the place where you are, to make your people our people, that we would own and know the God of this universe who rescues and that our future is secure in you. Lord, lead us, we pray. For your sake, amen. If this is a message that you've never heard before and you feel like this morning, I need to respond to that, I'm going to sit down the front here and at the end or during this last song or two, look, just come up and sit with me and, and we'll pray together or we'll chat further. Or if it's someone come with you to church this morning and you know them and you'd like to talk with them, they would love to tell you more about Jesus.